Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. It's good to see you this morning. I love this time of year as students begin to roll back into town. Uh, we're really glad, uh, to, we're, uh, if you're a new student, we're so glad you're here. Whether you're in person or watching online, welcome. We love students at this church. All right, well, today um, I wanted to just kind of jump in on the deep end or kind of let you in on a question that, that I have just been pondering a bit lately that I think will kind of set us up for where I want to take us today in our message, and that is this. What effect is Christianity supposed to have on a person? What is Christianity supposed to do to a person? You ever thought about that? You know, we, when we do something major in our lives, you know, our belief systems, or we take up an initiative, whether it's, you know, we go to a gym. When we go to a gym, we expect, you know, to, if we take out a gym membership, we expect that it's going to, that we're going to be fitter as a result of it. Or if we go to university, we expect that we're going to be, get an education and be trained in certain skills as a result of it. If we go on a diet, we expect that we're going to be hungry. I mean, sorry, that we're going to lose weight as a result of it, right? <laughs> uh, if, we, if we go on a holiday, you know, we, we expect to see new things, to have adventures, to get some rest, unless, of course, you're on a, small, on a holiday with small children, and then that's a very different story, but that's, we can talk about that later. No, but what, ex- what effect, what impact is Christianity supposed to have on a person? Well, Adam actually just read the answer to us. I don't, I don't know if you caught it or not, but in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18, it says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Gosh, there's a whole sermon there, but we're going to move on. And we all, with, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image. Paul, who wrote this, he, he says it another way in Romans 8. This is a passage many of you are familiar with. It says, you know, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. We're all familiar with that verse, uh, but maybe not so familiar with the next verse. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to what? Chose them to go to heaven, chose them to be saved. What did he choose them for? He says he chose them to become like his son. To become like his son. Now, maybe this is obvious to you. Maybe you're like, yeah, well, I I need the answer to this already. But, But sometimes I think as followers of Jesus, we lose sight of what the goal is, what the primary purpose of our faith is. And the primary purpose Uh, God's primary purpose in our life is not to make us happy or healthy or wealthy or to remove all pain and suffering from our lives. Uh, God's primary purpose is to make us like Jesus, to make us like Jesus. 
You see, God wants to transform us, and, and, and so that what, what people experience when they experience us is they experience the hands and feet of Jesus. They experience what Jesus, was, was, would, be, what Jesus would do and what Jesus would say if he were in our shoes. And the idea behind these passages that we just read are, are, are the same. It's kind of like a mold that you pour a liquid into that forms and shapes uh, something when it, set, when it sets. And the idea is that we are being poured into um, the mold of Jesus. We're being formed and shaped to look like him, that we would have his character, that we'd have his purity and integrity, that we would have his, his unbroken intimacy with the Father, that we'd have his love and compassion for others, that we'd have his power and authority. So God is setting us free. You know, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God is setting us free from the sin that enslaves us so that we can look like Jesus. And whether you're a mother of small children, or whether you're a doctor with a busy schedule, or whether you're a full-time student, God's desire for you is that you would know Jesus so well that you'd be able to accurately represent him wherever you find yourself, that you'd be able to respond to circumstances in the same way that he would if he were in your shoes. That's the effect that Christianity is meant to have on our lives to make us look like Jesus. So the question is how? How do we become like Jesus? You know, there are many things that we could point to. You know, you could talk about renewing the mind. You could talk about the work of the Spirit in us. You could, you could talk about learning and meditating on the Scriptures. You could talk about prayer and, uh, you know, many, many other things. And those are all good things. We should be doing those things. But what I want to talk about is the overarching process by which God transforms us to look like Jesus. I want to talk about there's, there's a method that all of these things kind of fit into. And, and, and what we know it as is a very common uh, word. It's kind of a Christianese word. We don't really use this word outside of church, but we know it as discipleship. And this morning, I'm beginning a series that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to, to enter into this journey of becoming like Jesus. We often call this discipleship. Other, other traditions call this spiritual formation, but it's all really referring to the same thing. And my, my goal for this series is to give you a, a framework because discipleship is the means by which God transforms us to make us look like Jesus. But if I'm honest, you know, as I was preparing this series and just kind of thinking about my experiences with discipleship and hearing people talk about it over the years, I kind of feel like while there's a few people that get very passionate about discipleship, most Christians, are it doesn't move the needle much for them. You know, we get excited about things like the power of God. We get excited about signs and wonders, we, and we should. And, and, we, and some people get excited about studying the Bible and going deep theologically, and, and I'm definitely there. We should be excited about those things. But when it comes to discipleship, I think the, the, the undercurrent of it is disappointment or just kind of indifference. 
And I think there's all kinds of reasons for that, but what I think it boils down to is that there are some ways that, uh, that in the Western church we have misunderstood what discipleship is and what it's meant to be. There's some myths around it that I think have made discipleship either a disappointing experience for people or frustrating or, or just kind of a confusing experience. And so what I want to start off with in this series is maybe busting a few of the myths that we might have believed about discipleship over the years. Does that sound good? All right. First of all, I want to say this. The first myth that I think that we carry about discipleship is that discipleship is optional. We think that discipleship is something that is kind of a, an add-on to our salvation. You know, we get saved, and that's the main thing. That's the important thing. And then if you're extra zealous or if you're an overachiever, then you take on discipleship, and you really go for it. But it's really not all that necessary. I think we see it as something that's an optional extra. And there's a couple of problems with that approach, and that is that, first of all, the writers of the New Testament, they didn't see it that way at all. For them, to be a Christian was to be a disciple. They were synonymous. They're interchangeable terms. You could say this person's a Christian, but for them, it would be just as easy to call them a disciple. And most of the, the uses of the word disciple in the New Testament really are describing, it, it's, it's a noun, it's not a verb. You see, we, we kind of use it as I'm discipling this person or that person is discipling me. It's a, it's a verb. It's something that's done to us. But in the New Testament, it's a, it's a noun. It's something that you are. So discipleship isn't something that you do. It's something that you are. We are disciples of Jesus. And the way the New Testament approaches this is really, as, as in terms of describing people and how they relate to Jesus, there's really only two categories of people. There are disciples, and there's the crowd. Now, there's a point of confusion around this. When we think of disciples, we think of the 12, right? You know, Peter and Andrew and James and John and, and doubting Thomas, who has that unfortunate moniker always associated with his name. You know, we know those 12, but, but that's actually, those are just 12 of Jesus's disciples, Jesus actually had way more than 12 disciples. And if you read through the New Testament, what you find is, is that Jesus had probably hundreds of disciples. For example, in Luke 10, we're told about Jesus sending out 72 of his disciples. And we don't really know who those 72 are. But, but often we tend to think of just Jesus having just those 12 guys, and that was it. Those were his only disciples. But it seems much more likely that he had hundreds of disciples, and some of them followed him full time, and some of them followed him for just a few weeks. Some of them came and, go, came and went as they were able. But those 12, the 12 that we know, those are the apostles. They were called, Jesus called them out from this crowd of disciples that he had, and he said, hey, you guys are going to be the ones that I'm going to appoint and commission to take the gospel to the nations, to make disciples of all nations, as we hear about in Matthew 28. So the, the, the 12 that we know about, those are the apostles, but Jesus had many, many more disciples, most of whom weren't called to become apostles. So Jesus had many disciples. And in the New Testament, you have all those disciples, the people that were following Jesus, that were actively trying to live out the things that he taught. And then you have the crowd. And the crowd was just all over the place spiritually. Some of them were genuinely curious and hunger, hungry for Jesus. They, they were interested in what he was doing and teaching. Some of them just wanted an afternoon's entertainment. You know, they didn't have 
TV. They didn't have the internet in those days. They didn't have glowing rectangles in their pockets to distract them. So, you know, watching and listening to Jesus was probably the best entertainment they had around for quite some distance, you know? And he'd, maybe he'd do a miracle. Maybe he'd say something interesting. Maybe he'd say something controversial. You know, people love that stuff just as much then as they do now. And then there were people maybe that needed healing, either for them or their loved ones, or they needed deliverance for them or for their loved ones. And Jesus represented the only hope for them to be there. And, and then Jesus also had people that were in the, there are people in the crowd that were his enemies, that were looking for, for ways to entrap Jesus and to accuse Jesus. They were just waiting to pounce if Jesus took a false step. But my point here is that in the New Testament, discipleship wasn't optional. You were either a disciple of Jesus or you were a part of the crowd. It wasn't an optional extra for the, for the more zealous among us. Second myth is that discipleship is about acquiring information. You know, in the Western church, we have this mindset that if we accumulate enough information, that that is what discipleship is all about. That the goal of that kind of methodology is that if we can accumulate enough information, then we will become more like Jesus. It's kind of, you know, in this model, it's all about, you know, mastering all these theological concepts and learning the Bible, and those are all good things. But it's kind of like, you know, getting a university degree where if you, you, you take the required subjects, you pass the required exams, and then you are you get your degree. And in the same way, we have this approach that if we can just learn enough hermeneutics, if we can study the Bible, if we can, you know, take courses on evangelism or take courses on, on, uh, on studying different books of the Bible, if we can master it, then we'll be a disciple. But this approach assumes that knowledge produces transformation. I think we all know that information, isn't, information alone doesn't transform us. We can know something in our heads, right? But it doesn't always make it down to our hearts. We can, we, can be, you know, we can be aware of theological truths, but it doesn't necessarily transform us. And while it's really good to understand what we believe, and of course we need to study the Bible, and of course we need to, to apply ourselves to, to, to uh, learning about our faith, that's not, knowledge is not the hallmark of Christianity. Paul said that, that knowledge puffs up. And I think one of the most you know, interesting things is that Jesus didn't go to the people that knew the Bible best and ask them to be his disciple. And, and I think it's really disturbing, actually, that, that those people, the Pharisees, who knew the Bible best were the very ones who missed the fact that, that the Messiah that they had been waiting for was right in front of them, and they didn't know it. They, they couldn't see it. And in fact, they were the ones who were his enemies. They were the ones who were accusing him, and they were the ones that were ultimately responsible for his death. So just knowing the Bible doesn't produce transformation. The trick is not just knowing something, but, knowing, uh, but doing something with what you know. The process of you know, taking that information and learning how to apply it in your life, that's what discipleship is all about. It's not just a big curriculum for you to tick off. Thirdly, discipleship 
is when someone disciples you. And if I'm honest, this is where I think most of us land. This was certainly the paradigm I had for discipleship, you know, this idea that, that somebody is going to need to come invest in me and disciple me and spend time with me. You know, maybe we meet one-on-one for coffee once a week, and they, they, we study the scriptures together, or we talk about life together, and they're further along down the road than, than I am. And I usually wanted somebody that was a church leader to disciple me. But if I'm honest, that never actually happened. And my bet is, if I went around and took a survey, that's probably your story as well. We think that that it's about somebody coming along saying, hey, I want to disciple you. And you meet with them for like a year or something. And that's that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's really kind of a subcategory of what we're talking about. It's more of a, a mentoring relationship. That's not really what New Testament discipleship is all about. And the problem with that mindset is that if somebody doesn't come along and make that offer for you, or if somebody's not able to do it, then you're stuck. You, 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 the onus is on somebody else to make you a disciple rather than you choosing to become a disciple yourself. And you become this, this passive recipient. You, you, you can't do anything unless somebody can invest in you. I, I mean, that was certainly the attitude I've had at times and as I grew up in the church. I'm like, well, nobody's meeting with me, so I guess I don't really need to keep growing in my relationship with God. But passivity, has, and passivity is really destructive to our being a disciple of Jesus. Passivity and discipleship do not go together. And I think we have to learn how to take the initiative for our relationship with God. It's not dependent on other people. And the other side of that is that when, we, when you have this approach, when you're discipled by somebody else, what happens is that we can easily, even with the best of intentions, become that person's disciple. We begin to pattern our lives off of them, and, and there's some degree that we, we need examples, especially early in our spiritual lives, just to see how people do things differently, how they conduct their marriages, how they parent their children, uh, how they understand the Bible. That's all helpful, but ultimately, we're not trying to become this person's disciple or that person's disciple. We're trying to become Jesus's disciple. Jesus is the only rabbi. Jesus is the only one who's discipling us. And the the mindset we have to have is that actually I am a disciple of Jesus. Always. Now other people, God will bring people into our lives to help us on this journey of becoming like Jesus. But my goal is not to become like this great spiritual leader over here. My goal is not to become like that person over there. My goal is to become like him. That is the purpose of Christianity. So, those are three myths. Now, there's other things we could discuss, but those are the major ones that I think I just want to, at the very outset, kind of bust those myths a little bit. But let's talk about what discipleship is. Now, the Greek word that is translated disciple in the New Testament means learner or student, but it's not like a a university student. It's more like somebody that's learning a trade or a craft, And the English word that I think best captures the idea of a New Testament disciple is apprentice. Now, I know there's a TV show called The Apprentice out there, and I want you to just banish all thoughts of that TV. I've never actually seen it. I know Donald Trump, they had an American version of it, and Donald Trump was like the the, the boss, and everybody was, I don't, I've never watched it. Not a political statement either, so let's not go off on that tangent. But just banish all thoughts of The Apprentice from your mind, that's my main point here. 
Um, <laughs> because that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, for example, if somebody wants to apprentice as an electrician or a plumber, what are they going to do? They're going to go spend time with a master electrician or a master plumber in order to, to learn the trade, and they're going to follow that person around every day. They're going to ask questions. They're going to be instructed in the practicals and the how-tos and, and, and gain the insight and the information that they need over a course of years to eventually become uh, uh, plumbers or electricians themselves. That's more, I think, the idea that, uh, of discipleship. Now, the whole concept of discipleship didn't actually start with Jesus. We think this was just something he did, but it actually goes much further back than that. It started in ancient Greece. People like Aristotle or Plato, they had disciples. They would pass on their, their philosophy to them, and these, these people devoted their lives to mastering the philosophy of their teachers. Anyway, this filtered into uh, to modern Israel, to Israel, and the Jews picked this up, and they began to apply it to their spiritual uh, lives, and so they developed the rabbinical system. So you had these rabbis who were the kind of the modern, or uh, the, the, sorry, the the equivalent of modern day pastors. They they taught the, the Torah. They led services in the synagogue. They were the spiritual leaders of their community. Now Jesus was a rabbi. In fact, you see people in the New Testament addressing him that way saying rabbi and asking questions. And John the Baptist was a rabbi. So this system was, was, was very uh, foundational to Judaism in the first century, and it still is happening today. <laughs> in fact, if you were to go to Israel today, you could find people or you could identify who, uh, what rabbi people are following by how they dress and, and how they look and how they conduct themselves. This system has carried on for centuries. And what rabbis would do is they would, they, they're part of their responsibility in addition to being a spiritual leader in their community was to develop new rabbis. And this whole system of discipleship, this was kind of the, the way that people were educated. And so what they would do is they would look out in their community and they would identify young men who they felt like would be good potential future rabbis. And when they hit the age of about 15, they would approach this young, young man and say, I want you to follow me and be my disciple. And that was a big honor in that culture. This is something that everybody strived for. Rabbis were deeply respected. They are deeply respected in Jewish culture. And so they would invite these guys to come and follow them. And if you recall, we see Jesus doing this very thing in the New Testament. Jesus would go to these men and say, follow me. We're given several accounts of Jesus inviting men to follow him. And that's what they did. And these, these men, they would follow these rabbis for years watching what they taught, listening to them, becoming like them, studying their, the way that they not, not just uh, conducted their lives, but the way that they did everything, all their teaching, all the ways they lived, all the ways they interacted with their family. They became uh, apprentices to this rabbi. Now, a bit of a side note here. We always think of the disciples, that, the 12 that Jesus had as sort of middle-aged men, but actually that's not accurate. I think that most of the disciples that Jesus had were teenagers. And we know this because, remember the story where uh, a man, the, the tax collectors approach Jesus and they say, hey, why don't you pay the temple tax? And long, Jesus goes back and forth with them, and P, he and Peter end up having to pay the temple tax. Well, what that tells us is that only Peter was over 20 years old because you have to be older than 20 before you're required to pay the temple tax. So what that means is Jesus was leading a youth group. 
it explains a lot, doesn't it? The bickering between the disciples, the, the, the in, their incomprehension for most of what Jesus was teaching. That if, you know, have you been around a teenage boy anytime recently? I mean, I was a teenage boy. I remember what I was like as a teenage boy. And, and it just makes, you know, if you look at the, the, the disciples were kind of knuckleheads, weren't they? You know, they just didn't get it most of the time. And that's because they were like 15, 16, 17 years old. And they, you know, just weren't quite with it most of the time. But isn't it interesting that Jesus chose those people to, and entrusted them with the most precious message that we would ever have? And so if you're a teenager here this morning listening to this, I want you to know you are not too young to be used by God. God's not waiting for you to grow up and mature in order to start pouring into you and investing you and using you in significant ways. So Jesus is <laughs> he's leading a youth group, and it seems like Peter is a little bit older. And, and so when you read the Gospels, just kind of keep that in mind. It makes the, the, the disciples make a lot more sense. So rabbis, they'd spend time preaching and teaching, and their disciples would follow them around. But this was, like I said, it was more than academic training. The discipleship system was really, it had three goals, and it was becoming like their rabbi, or being with their rabbi, sorry. It was becoming like their rabbi, and it was doing what their rabbi did. This was what, for, th for, for several years, this is all they would do. And eventually, you know, the rabbi would say, Okay, you've got what it takes. You're on your own. You can go begin leading in a different community or taking over from me, that kind of thing. But this was a process of years. It was an apprenticeship that took place. And the reason I'm giving you all this historical context is, is this is what Jesus had in mind when he called people to be his disciples. This is what his disciples did. They, they spent time with him. They were just, you know, think about it. We, we read through the Gospels and we read, you know, Jesus went from Galilee down to Jerusalem and we think, you know, it's like he just went across the street and picked up a, some milk or something. But actually, Jesus had to walk for three days to get to Jerusalem. And that journey took, it was his time investing in his disciples, walking with them, talking with them. They were seeing how he responded to everything from stubbing his toe on the road to how he interacted with uh, uh, somebody that was potentially a dangerous or a threat to them as they were on, this, on their journey. I mean, they would see Jesus in every conceivable kind of situation. And you know, when you spend time with somebody, you inevitably become like them. I was talking to somebody this week that was saying whenever they, that their accent sort of morphs whenever they talk to somebody that has a different accent. Anybody like that? Where you just, yeah, if you, oh, it's Carol, that's who it was, <laughs> who picks up, picks up accents wherever she goes. Um, yeah, when we spend time with people, we become like them. And the goal is not to just, just be like them, but to actually do the things that they do. And it's the same principle when it comes to discipleship for us. When we recognize that as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we are Jesus' disciples, that we are his apprentices, we can apply the same principles. And I should say here, I'm indebted to John Mark Comer, who is a pastor in Oregon and his church, Bridgetown Church, for the, for the way that they put this together, because it really, when I saw this, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense, and I wish I would have seen this years ago. But the concept is really the same. It's to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Now, this whole series, we're going to 
explore what each of those things is all about. But this is really a, a paradigm for us to use as we think about discipleship, as we assess our own life with God. It's, it's simple. We need to just be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the stuff that Jesus did. Now, as I said, we'll go into more detail about this, but let me just briefly explain what, what I mean by this. Be with Jesus. You know, it means abiding with Him. It means practicing the spiritual disciplines of prayer and solitude and, and studying the Scriptures. It's, it's simply learning how to be with Him. That is the foundation. That's the bedrock of our faith. Remember, Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, you will abide in me, and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Christianity is built on the foundation of being with Jesus. And that's why we harp on so much about spending time with God on a regular basis. We simply need to learn how to be with Him. But then as you spend time with Him, you can't help but become like Him. And becoming like Jesus is about being transformed from the inside out. It's about experiencing genuine freedom from sin, and it's about learning to love people well. It's about developing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. That's what we mean. It's becoming like Jesus is about getting free. <laughs> becoming like Jesus is, is, is about becoming whole. Who wouldn't want that? And then, of course, it's about doing what Jesus did. You know, back to the plumber analogy. If you were apprenticing as a plumber, you wouldn't just want to learn about plumbing. The goal is eventually to be able to plumb a house by yourself, Right? You want, to get, you want that plumber to train you in such a way that you can do the very same stuff that that plumber is doing. And it's the same with Jesus. Jesus wants to apprentice us so that we can do the very same things he did. Or maybe to put it another way, so that we can do the very things that he would do if he were in our shoes. Now, just to remind you, you might be thinking, well, what, what all did Jesus do? What are you talking about? Let me just give you a quick inventory. This is not extensive, but Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus taught the scriptures. Jesus uh, healed the sick. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus prayed. He prophesied. He ate and drank with people far from God and, of course, his own followers. He spoke up against injustice, and he stood up against religious and political corruption. These are all things that Jesus did on a regular basis. You find these things through that. And, and, and Jesus, as, a, as his apprentices, wants us to be able to learn how to do the same thing. And maybe you look at this list and think, uh, I'm not sure I can do all that. I'm not even sure I want to do all that. And that's okay. As you spend time with Jesus, as you become like him, You'll find that your values change. You'll find that your capacities change. You'll, you'll find that, that, this is, that, that you're able to do and you even want to do things that, that would have freaked you out before. <laughs> you would have thought, no way could I ever do that. You see, it's a process of becoming like Jesus. It doesn't happen overnight. This happens over months and years and decades. And we, you know, we want to just snap our fingers and make it happen right away, but it doesn't happen right away. It's a process of becoming like him. So as we close today, I just want to ask you this question. Are you becoming more like Jesus? You know, if, if that's the measure of, this, of Christianity, if that's the impact that it's meant to have on us, I think it's fair for us to evaluate ourselves along those lines. Am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I more like Jesus this year than last year? 
Over the last five or ten years, have I grown in Christ-likeness, or am I stuck? If you don't know the answer to that question, maybe, maybe think about the people that know you best, the people that you live with, your, your family members, your flatmates, whatever. Would they say that you're becoming more like Jesus? You know, for some of us, we would definitely be able to say yes. We are completely different. You're a completely different person than you were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. For some of you, you might remember, like maybe when you first became a Christian, that there was real transformation that happened, but then you kind of hit a wall, you got stuck. And that's part of the discipleship journey sometimes is, is, is we kind of grow and then we hit plateaus and then, and then God has to do something to move us forward again. That's, we're going to talk about that in this series. Or maybe you'd say, you know, I'm not sure I've ever been transformed to look more like Jesus. I'm not sure it's had any impact on me. Well, wherever you're at, I just want to say there is hope for all of us. The Christian life is about becoming like Jesus. Jesus is an expert in making you like him. And if you recognize that you are, a, if you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in him, you have entered into a journey, whether you realize it or not, of being a disciple to be formed and to become like Jesus. And the good news today is that Jesus invites all of you, all of us, whether you're listening online or you're here in person, to be his disciples. I think that's such good news. You know, Jesus, Jesus gave, when he gave the, the, the great commission to the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations, he was extending this invitation to follow him to the entire world, and he was extending it to you and to me. And of course, the disciples and the apostles, they had Jesus there with them in the flesh, but we actually have something better. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit in, in Pentecost. And remember, Jesus said in John 14, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How's he going to come? With the Holy Spirit. And that means we don't have to wait for Jesus to come or to, you know, have to somehow have Jesus with us in the flesh. We can go to him right now. We don't have to wait for a church leader to come and say, hey, I'd like to disciple you. No, no, we can go to Jesus right now and say, Lord, make me like you. He's invested in this process. He wants, to, he wants you to be his apprentice, and he's inviting you today, saying, come and follow me. So I'm just sharing this with you because I wanted to lay this foundation that we're all invited. The goal to, to, in this process, this journey of becoming like him. And maybe that's a new paradigm for you today. Maybe that's, you've never thought about it this way. And maybe today there needs to be a place of surrender and just saying, okay, I don't want to just be in the crowd anymore. I want to be a disciple. Let me pray for you. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this invitation that you give us to follow you. Thank you that this invitation is not an invitation to follow a, the philosophies and teachings of a long-dead historical figure. But this invitation is to enter into a relationship with a resurrected Savior who is alive today and who, by, by the Spirit of God, is able to speak to our hearts and move in our lives and actually mold us and shape us to look like you. God, for those who feel like they're in the crowd today, that they're on the outside looking in, Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to take that step towards you. And Lord, for those who have lost heart in some way, 
or stuck in some way, Lord, I pray that you'd bring breakthrough, that you'd bring uh, vision, that you'd bring um, a, 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 yeah, just a healing that, that would allow them to move forward again into this journey of transformation. Jesus, teach us as a church what it means to be like you or to be with you. Teach us what it means to be like you and teach us how to do the things that you did. I pray that as a church, we would not be just content to sit on the sidelines and content to just know about you. God, let us be your apprentices that we might become like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.